0: Well, what on earth are we to do? What can we do as churches faced with some of the big challenges uh, in the world and in the wider church? What can we do faced with the unbelief of so many and with false religion and with a culture that is becoming increasingly anti-Christian? What can we do faced with deviant forms of Christianity, such as liberal theology and the prosperity gospel that is so uh, popular what can we do not only as churches but as individual Christians that can make some difference, any difference to the advance of God's kingdom in this world, what on earth can we do well this evening I want to answer that question from this passage in 1 Samuel, here we learn from the example of Jonathan uh, that it is indeed possible to do something Each of us can do something to make a difference for the advance of God's kingdom in the world. Now, compared to what other churches and other Christians have done or will do or even are doing right now, it may not seem very significant. It may be very small, almost unnoticed. As far as the world is concerned, it might even be laughable. But in God's eyes, it is significant and is no laughing matter because it serves his purpose to advance his kingdom through ordinary people. And that God uses ordinary people and ordinary churches to advance his kingdom is a theme in the Bible that we need to take uh, to heart. We sometimes think of, you know, the big, you know, big, big events of church history. But it's often the little things that happen, the little people that God uses are the things that really matter. Compared to his good friend uh, David, Jonathan in this passage is not one of the towering figures in the Bible story. He makes a, a brief appearance and then disappears as the story moves on. Everyone remembers David, and rightly so, as we'll see. And if they remember Jonathan, it's really because he was David's friend. But here in this passage, Jonathan does something significant for God. Like Jonathan, And like Jonathan, we can as well in our generation and serving God's purposes with the gifts and the opportunities and the circumstances that he gives each one of us. So let's turn to the passage, and I'd like you to note three things. And the first one is this, the plight of Israel because of the domination of the Philistines. The plight of Israel because of the domination of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were the great enemy of Israel at this point in their history. And under the leadership of King Saul, the Israelites had tried to fight back. However, the Israelites were vastly outnumbered by the Philistines who had penetrated deep into Israelite uh, territory. If you go back in, in the earlier part of chapter 13, verse 15, sorry, verse 5, we read, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they kept, went up and they camped at Michmash east of Beth Haven. So you have this enormous uh, number of uh, Philistines with the latest weapons uh, and, and vast numbers, the latest technology in, in, in warfare. And then verses 17 and to uh, uh, 18, we read, raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned towards Ophrah, another towards Beth Horon, a third towards the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboiom facing the uh, wilderness. No wonder then the Israelites were terrified. Again, verses 6 and 7 of chapter uh, 13. When the Israelites saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets and among the rocks and in the pits and the cisterns. And some of the Hebrews even crossed the Jordan (coughs) to the land of Gad and Gilead. It was a desperate, desperate situation, a terrible plight Israel found itself in at this time. And making matters worse was King Saul whom God had rejected as king because of his disobedience. And in this passage, we find Saul rather pathetically a pomegranate tree. So ESV has it in a, in a pomegranate cave. I'm not sure what a pomegranate cave would be, but uh, it probably was a pomegranate tree. I some sort of tree, of pomegranates, with only 600 men uh, with him. In fact, things had got so bad that the Israelites had to go to the Philistines to have their basic tools of farming And so on uh, sharpened. Verses 19 and uh, following of chapter 13. No blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said. Otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords and spears. And so all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares and their mattocks and their axes and their sickles. Uh, sharpened, and then gives us all the prices. Now this is a sort of Iron Age, and the iron was the latest technology. And if you like, the Israelites didn't have the technicians, the blacksmith. We think a blacksmith is a very sort of ordinary, sort of physical thing to do, but that was you know the technician, the you know, IT specialist you needed uh, at, at that time, the person who could manage this new uh, technology. And the Israelites had to go down and have all their equipment sharpened and so on by them. And this Philistine monopoly on the latest Iron Age technology, meant the Israelites had very few weapons with which to fight her enemy. And this really was a very humiliating situation for Israel to find herself in. And now surrounded by the Philistine army, the situation was hopeless. Now, it seems to me that the plight of the church today is similar in some ways to that of the Philistines. Of course, their circumstances are very different. But there are some very similarities here, um, as well. In some ways we can see how the enemy has invaded the, the territory where Christianity once was so dominant. I think this is one of the things we see in the United Kingdom today. Where gospel Christianity was so dominant. I was reading of a, a church in Wales, uh, uh, in um, Ammanford near Swansea. One of these great, uh, it, was, uh, it was a, a Presbyterian, a Calvinistic Methodist chapel. I had a very well-known uh, minister there for the first half of the 20th century who was used by God in the, the 1904-5 revival. Saw God powerfully at work. A, a chapel, you know, big tears. One of these massive big buildings sits 1,000 people, filled, and great, great blessing. And I, I, so I thought, that's interesting. What happened, what's happened to that chapel? Well, it just, it just slowly declined and was shut down a few years ago. And that's happened right across Wales, right across England, right across Scotland, churches where the gospel once was so was powerfully heard, no longer it is being heard. Communities that are once affected by the gospel, no longer uh, so. And uh, we can see how the culture is sort of turning away from gospel elements uh, all uh, around us, and how false teaching, heresy, so on, is gaining. And it's depressing, it's, just, it's just discouraging for, for Christians. And dominated by the world, the church can be dependent on the world. And that's true even of the evangelical church. So that we have to, in many ways, have to uh, go uh, so that we have few weapons uh, with which to fight in the advance of God's kingdom. And and often we have to go to the the world to get our, our weapons, as it were, sharpened. Of course, our fight is a spiritual, not a physical one. And our weapons are spiritual, physical. We read of that in, in, in Ephesians. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. We're not into a physical warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. And in 2 uh, Corinthians, in Second Corinthians chapter uh, 10, uh, Paul, verse 4, Paul can say the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds and, and so on. Nevertheless, we can still be dependent on the world. What do I mean by that? Well, it is possible for us to be dependent on the world and our thinking so that rather than seeing the world biblically, we, we see it as everybody else does. We can just think like people in the world. It's, you know, it's, That's easy to happen because we, we, we go to school, we get educated, we go to work, we have training, we pick up all this sort of thinking around us, we associate with people. <coughs> but so often our thinking as Christians can be conformed to this world and not transformed by the renewing of our mind, as Paul puts it in Romans. Uh, Likewise, it's possible for us to be dependent on the world uh, for our theology, so that rather than conforming to what we believe in Scripture, we conform to what is acceptable to the world. And again, we see that happening. It happens in different areas, different issues, different generations. Right now, the issues are in sexuality and so on. But you could find that there are evangelical Christians who seem to be uh, giving way on, on, on what what's we thought was essential biblical theology through the pressure of the world, conforming their theology. And we can conform in our behavior so that rather than uh, living according to the commands and principles of God's word, we behave according to the standards of the world. We can conform in the, our affection so that rather than loving what God would have us love, we love what the world would love. And so that's really, in the end, idolatry, putting something, loving something in this creation more than the creator himself. So in these ways, we can find ourselves in a situation similar uh, to, to Israel. We can find ourselves in the same plight. And that's a serious thing for God's people. We need to, 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 to take account. We need to look at ourselves personally, as churches, as local congregations, as well as the church more, more generally. But secondly, I want you to see the man who knew what had to be done in this crisis. The man who knew what had to be done in this crisis. Step forward, Jonathan. He's the man who knows what has to be done in the crisis facing Israel. Now, Jonathan has already engaged in battle back in chapter 13, or earlier in 13, verse 3. But now he proposes to his armor bearer that they attack another Philistine outpost, verse 1 of chapter 14. Now, a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. And one day, Jonathan said to uh, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the, his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, Jonathan doesn't tell his father what he plans to do, probably because he would order him not to. So he's not going to tell him. It's just, you know, he's not going to tell Dad. He's just going to go on and do what he believes he has to in this situation, in this crisis. Physically, Jonathan's plan um, was a daunting one, a courageous one because of the deep ravine that that they would have to cross, the steep cliff they would have to climb. We're told that there were these two two hills, and they would have to go down one side and up the other side to attack the Philistines. very dangerous because you're exposing yourself, and it's a lot of effort, you have to scramble up uh, the other side. Now, from Jonathan's conversation with his armor-bearer, I want you to note three things that we can take to heart. The first is this, Jonathan's attitude to the Philistines. Jonathan's attitude to the Philistines. You see, to Jonathan, the Philistines are those uncircumcised men. Verse, uh, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, or those uncircumcised, as the ESV puts it. Now, circumcision was the sign that a man belonged to the covenant people of God. The Philistines were uncircumcised and not the people of God. And therefore, God is not with them. He was not with them. He was, they were not the people of God. Yes, they were numerous. Yes, they were well-armed. Yes, they were all over of the place. But without God, they were nothing. They were nothing. And Jonathan thinking this. Why should Israel be intimidated by such people if they're not the people of God? Listen to how later his friend David puts it. In a more famous confrontation chapter 17 as he uh, with with Goliath verse uh, 26 and uh, listen to what David says he's inquiring about the situation David asks the men standing near him what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine who removes this disgrace from Israel who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God the same attitude the Goliath doesn't belong to God's people. The Philistines Jonathan's facing, they don't belong to God's people. So God is not with them. Now the attitude Jonathan had to the Philistines should be the attitude we have to those we oppose, who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and oppose His gospel. Now such a, opponents may seem very impressive with their academic credentials, with their influence in the media, with their political power. And uh, you know they, they 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 can seem very very uh, impressive, like the Israelites. Uh, many Christians may be intimidated uh, by them, but we must see our opponents, those who oppose the gospel, for who they really are. They are these uncircumcised fellows. Uh, they are they are not the people of God, and therefore God is not with them, and they can be defeated. And the second thing, note Jonathan's confidence in the God. In God to save. Jonathan's confidence in God to save. Now listen again to, to, um, to verse 6. Uh, Jonathan says, Come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan is confident in the ability of the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, to save. Because salvation is what he does, it doesn't matter how many people he uses. He can save by many, he can save by few. Your confident as Jonathan is, he's not presumptuous. Do you note know that uh, it may be, as it is in the ESV, or that perhaps, as it is in the NIV, perhaps the Lord will save. It may be that the Lord will save. God can save, but in the end it's up to him whether or not he will save. Jonathan isn't presuming upon God doing this. Now, such confidence in God is what characterizes those who attempt great things for God and his kingdom. The God of the Bible reveals himself as the God that nothing can hinder from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can hinder God from doing what he wants to do. Nothing can hinder God from achieving his saving purposes. And this is the God we trust to advance his kingdom through your church here at London City Presbyterian or whatever church you may come from or whatever church we belong to uh, or through us individually as Christians serving the Lord in some way. But like Jonathan, we don't presume that God will do that. We don't uh, just take it for granted that he'll do that. However, our perhaps or our he may do is, is not unbelief but rather a humble submission to the sovereign will of God. In other words, we should be humbly confident that God will act to advance his kingdom through us. Not presumptuous. He may right now use us in the way we would like, but he can if he wants to. Perhaps he will. And we have that humble confidence in God. And it seems to me that what Jonathan says here is a good anecdote to the unbelief that's too often characteristic of Christians. On the one hand, there is the unbelief that expects too little of God. On the other hand, the unbelief that expects too much of God. Uh, in one sense, we can never expect too much uh, from uh, from God. John Newton puts it in his great hymn on prayer. We can never ask too much. There's not too much we can ask God to do. There's, 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 in one sense, we can never expect too much from God. But we can't demand that God do too much. That's the point. If we demand that he do what we want to do, rather than what he wants to do, then that is expecting too much. And I suggest it is a form of unbelief. But neither must we; uh, our expectations be too little, uh, and th- that God would do, do nothing. Uh, no, Jonathan, like Jonathan, we must humbly be confident that perhaps the Lord will act on behalf and do his work. We need a big faith that God can do whatever he wants to do. But we leave it to him to decide his way, his means, how he will answer our prayers, and and so on. We expect much, but we're not presumptuous. But we don't expect too little because we have a God who can save, whether by many or by few. And that thirdly brings us to Jonathan's partnership with his armor bearer. Jonathan's partnership with his armor bearer. Jonathan's armor bearer gave uh, his proposal his wholehearted consent. Look at verse uh, verse 7. The armor bearer says to him, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. From deep within himself, the armor bearer is with his master. And so together they advance uh, towards the enemy outpost, verses uh, 8 <coughs> and, and following. And Jonathan, come on then, let's cross over and let's see. Uh, If they say to us, wait uh, until we come to you, we will stay here where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be the sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. And so they show themselves to the Philistine outpost. uh, And they they sort of say, look, these Hebrews, they're on some derision. Look at these Hebrews crawling out of their holes. Uh, And uh, they shout to the Jonathan and the Armourer, come up to us, we'll teach you a lesson. Imagine this: sort of enter going on and the mockery and so on. Well, Jonathan takes that as a sign. He says to the armor bearer, climb up with, uh, after me. The, the Lord has given them uh, into uh, our hands. So showing them to the Philistines, the armor bearer and Jonathan uh, go up and they attack the Philistine out, uh, outpost. And uh, we see what happens in verses 13 and, and, and 14. Jonathan climbs up using you know, scrambling if you have ever been doing a bit of climbing mountain climbing scrambling up this very steep steep uh cliff uh, with his armor bearer right behind him you know imagine how dangerous it is and look at the Philistines could be looking down they could be throwing it at them doing all sorts of stuff the Philistines fell before Jonathan and the armor bearer uh, followed and killed men behind him and in that first attack Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half an acre 20 men in half and, and, and acre. Now in a moment, we will think about this victory. But right now, I want us to think about the partnership of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Perhaps Jonathan could have taken the outpost alone. God could have enabled him to do that. But Jonathan chose to take with him his armor bearer. And I think that has an important lesson for us in God's work. Uh, more often than not, it is good to work in partnership with others rather than to work alone. Uh, this is the pattern that we see in the ministry of, of Jesus with his disciples. Jesus had a, a band of disciples who worked with him. The Apostle Paul likewise had his associates. You read that right through his letters. He's always mentioning different people he's working with. He's always signing off, mentioning people who are, who are with him, where he is, and those he sent on somewhere, and, and so on. And church history is full of examples of such gospel uh, partnerships. Uh, you think of William Carey. Uh, this young uh, pastor, uh, making ends meet, teaching a bit of school, teaching pastor of a church, doing a few other things, but has this vision to reach, to take the gospel to the world. And very few people shared it. In the 1790s, he shared it with a group of Baptist pastors in the in Midlands, and he was discouraged. One of the most senior ones saying, "Young man, if God wants to do that, He'll send. He'll do it in His own way." But William Perry persisted, and eventually persuaded a group of friends to support him. He goes off, 1792 sent off with his wife and a few others to go off to what's uh, calcutta can't work there he goes up the river to Serampore, and he begins to uh, learn the language and he becomes a brilliant linguist in the process and uh, to, and uh, to translate the bible and to do evangelism and, and so on and seven years later the first uh, man is converted of krishna Pal, a hindu converted to the christian faith and and uh, over his lifetime, he sees about 120 people uh, converted and added to that uh, little church. There he is out in India. But he got a group of men to support him here and said, look, I'm going to go down into the mine, but you be my rope holders. You be the men who hold the rope and you send the supplies and you, you keep hold of me. And so John Sutcliffe up in Ulney, pastor of a church there and, and others joined together. They formed the Baptist Missionary Alliance and Missionary Society And that becomes one of the the first broad Protestant missionary societies followed, as I was saying this morning, by the London Missionary Society. It took a few years later for the Church of Scotland to catch up, but they did eventually. And and, uh, then other missionary groups got going. And the, the Protestant missionary movement begins. But it's this one man going with rope holders, people who are working with him in this ministry. And so I encourage you to seek out gospel partners with whom you can work. You don't have to go off to some great missionary enterprise but the gospel work you can do. And you can work, as the, the armor bearer puts it, heart and soul together for Christ and for his kingdom. Practically, that mean, might mean getting together with a like-minded brother or sister to pray uh, a, a, about <coughs> a certain work or a project, something you're doing through this church or a ministry in this church or a ministry in another part of the country or overseas that you want to support. And just with that, that person that you're in communi- communication uh, uh, with, and how much easier that is than when William Carey went out. It took months to get a message out to William Carey and back by ship. Now we can just sort of do it in a few seconds. We can send prayer requests and we can support, express our support and, and so on. We can send money. We can get engaged in a work uh, with, other, uh, uh, with other Christians working together. And, of course, we should be aware of not just of what we're doing individually, working together in a gospel ministry in some way, but what happens within the church itself and within whole denominations or church uh, networks. Uh, The Apostle Paul makes this point in his letter to the uh, Philippians, uh, Philippians uh, chapter uh, 1, where he says, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. Paul loved the partnership of believers with him. He wasn't a lone ranger all by himself. He loved the fact that the Philippians were behind him praying and supporting him and, and so on. And he writes to them from prison to tell them he really values their support. And then he goes on, verse 27, uh, to say uh, to them, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way from those who oppose you. Standing as one, striving together for the gospel. That's what gospel ministry is about, working heart and soul, like Jonathan and his armor bearer, for the kingdom. Uh, That's what happened in uh, my church in a remarkable way. Uh, I I don't know how much I mentioned about this this morning, but... uh, East London Tabernacle was a sort of East London version of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Charles Spurgeon was the minister. It was a, sm- a relatively small church in Stepney. Asked Spurgeon to recommend a-, a minister, he recommended a young man who had planted a church in Bromley named Archibald Brown. And Archibald Brown went to Stepney Tabernacle and uh, he preached, and um, he—they saw a remarkable work of God. So that this 800-seat chapel in 1867 uh, was filled up quickly. And then uh, he, he it, it moved to, to uh, the present site where they built a 3,000-seat auditorium. Happily, that was bombed in 1941, so I didn't have have a 3,000-seat auditorium. But uh, it was a big church filled, morning and evening. 3,000 people, 5,000 down on the Metropolitan Tabernacle, 3,000 at East London Tabernacle. So much so that at Trafalgar Square, they used to have trams going, and the tram drivers would call out, south to Charlie, east to Archie. And there would be crowds of people getting on these trams to go and hear the gospel in these churches. We'd love to have that happen again today. But this is what Archibald Brown wrote about uh, his church. He, he had a service in 1867. It was good. So many people were coming So saying, okay, we only have a service tonight for young men. And he said, um, uh, if you're going to come tonight, you have to bring a young man. So the church was full of young non-Christian men. He preached a sermon, he preached a few years before, from Luke seven, about the story of Jesus raising the widow of Na the son of the widow of Nain, the words, Young man, rise up. Nothing had happened when he preached this sermon. But that night he preached it, and uh sixty people were converted uh and added to the church, and it was amazing. He said it was the prayer meeting from the prayer meeting before the service, he felt as if he was physically lifted into the pulpit to preach. But years later he wrote this and about the church. He said he says, I think Of 30 years ago to that time, when I stood on Stepney Green for the first time in my life and looked across at that chapel that was pointed out to me as Stepney Green Tabernacle, then in want of a pastor. I think of those who gathered round me in those early days and said, Well, pastor, you preach and we will pray. And they constituted a noble band. And that's a wonderful sentiment, I think. So... There you put that with Andy, your your pastor. Well, pastor, well, Andy, you preach and we'll pray. What a noble band. The church gathering together, working together for the gospel. But not just with the minister, but with one another. Praying together, working together, serving together for uh, the gospel. And, of course, that's needed even on a larger scale, not just in a local church, but uh, with other Christians and other churches. Heart and soul partnerships with gospel churches. You belong to the Free Church of Scotland, working together for the gospel uh, they are being part of things going on here in, in, in London, being part of what's happening in other parts of the world, partners in the work of the gospel, heart and soul, just like Jonathan and his araber. But That brings us to the third thing to see, and that is the God who used Jonathan to win a great victory, the God who used Jonathan to win a great victory. The taking of the Philistine outpost by Jonathan and his armor bearer caused panic in the Philistine army, a panic made even worse by an earth, what seems to be an earthquake, as mentioned in chapter uh, 14, verse 15. Humanly, there's, there was no need to panic, as only one outpost had been taken of just half an acre. It was only 20 men, uh, and there were all these you know, Philistines, as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. But it, it, it ignited a, a panic. But we're told this happened because it was a panic sent by God. Panic sent by God. And seeing this, King Saul commands the Israelite troops to go into battle after he consults the ephod and so on. And that day, Israel is victorious over her Philistine enemy. However, what we must understand is that this victory is not Israel's victory, but God's victory. Yes, the Israelite soldiers did the fighting, but It was the Lord who saved Israel. We're told that in chapter 14, verse uh, 23. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. And the battle moved on beyond Bethaven. And that's what Jonathan understood as later did his friend David as he faced a Philistine champion. Uh, again, chapter 17, in the famous story of David and Goliath, verses 45 and, and following. David says to Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of armies, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And that's what we need to understand as we do God's work. God uses people like us to win victories for his kingdom. He uses us. It's his victory, but he uses us to win those victories. It was David who slung the stone. It was Jonathan and his armor bearer who cut down on those Philistines. And as we go into spiritual battle, God uses us. But he gets the victory. He wins the victory. And when he does... A little more of the enemy's territory is taken. And the front line of the war is pushed back. I love that little phrase at the end of verse uh, of chapter 14, verse 23. And the battle ma- moved beyond Bethaven. The battle moved beyond Bethaven. What happened that day at Bikmash did not win the war. That would go on for some time. But it did move the front line. And likewise, when, like Jonathan and his armor-bearer, we do something for the kingdom, it can be used by God to move the front line of the war and contribute to that final victory that will come when Jesus returns. The seemingly little things that you do for God by faith, you know, teaching in Sunday school, handing out tracts, setting up things in church, uh, visiting someone in the church and encouraging them, giving them a ring on the phone, uh, witnessing someone at work whatever it might be that little thing that you do for God nothing big in the eyes of the, something you've done for God by faith and in partnership perhaps with others really does matter and what makes that possible is the even greater victory that the Lord Jesus Christ won by his death and resurrection Jesus victory at the uh, Jonathan's victory at the Philistine outpost anticipated David's victory over Goliath not long afterwards. And that victory of David over Goliath anticipated the infinitely infinitely greater victory of Jesus as the Messiah. Descended from David and anointed by the Spirit, Jesus went into battle for our salvation. Unlike both them, but like David, Jesus went alone into battle to defeat sin and death and the devil in order to save his people. And in that great battle, Jesus won the victory of our salvation. And because he did, we could go into our lesser battles, alone or with others, knowing that he has won the victory. That battle might not that might battle might be with sin and temptation in our lives. We all do battle away with that all the time. Certain temptations we we face. You might be facing one right now, a really besetting one, a a sin you're trying to deal with in your your heart and in your in your life. You're battling against that. That battle might be to advance God's kingdom in in some area of ministry in, in, in this church or in this world. That battle might be to pray for something or someone the Lord has put on your heart, and you're battling away in prayer for that person, for that situation. But well, whatever the battle is, remember that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And strengthened by God's grace and maybe with the help of a friend, you can move the battle beyond Bethhaven. You can move the front line of the battle. You might not win the war. we will never win the war yet until Jesus returns. But you can move the battle. Beyond Haven. you can move the front line of the key, of the battle against the forces of evil by the little things we do by faith, and sometimes with the help of a friend. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you that you are God who can save by many or by few. You are God who saves, and the battle is with you, and you win the battle. But you use people like us, and we can follow the example of Jonathan. We can realize that the world has just merely uncircumcised Philistines. They're not your people. And we can work with others like the armor bearer, like friends in the church, brothers and sisters, husbands or wives. And, Lord, we know that you are the God in the end who saves, by many, or by few. So, Lord, help us, we pray, in the battles we fight, knowing that because Jesus won the greatest of all battles, we can go into battle in the power of your Spirit, armed with your word and with prayer and that we can move the, the front line a little bit beyond Bethhaven. We can take the, that little thing further. Nothing much in the eyes of the world, but that little bit that contributes to that great final victory when Jesus returns in power and glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.